They reach people through barbecue. We do it through donuts, you know. We, we have our priorities, right? Um, well, listen, I want to welcome you if you're, if you're first time here or you're just maybe just checking the church out. And this has maybe been a couple weeks that you're kind of seeing how we are as a church, who we are as a church. Um, like Chad said, um, I'll be at the back at the table back there. And if you have any questions, just feel free to ask um, if I can answer them. I will try. Um, but yeah, just, uh, you know, we're, we're a, a small enough community that. Uh, we, we generally, you know, can be able to like connect and meet and, um, and I sure would love to do that. I love meeting and knowing everybody in the church. I think I know almost everybody in the church. And so, um, and it's a great privilege of me to pastor this church. And so, um, and so, yeah, I hope that you kind of feel comfortable, feel like you're a part of a family here. Um, and if you are just feeling us out, obviously we're not like, uh, 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 with our initiatives like Fifth Sunday, we believe that if you're in church, we're happy to. So wherever that is, but we hope that maybe you find a family here. So let's pray and we'll get started. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your word, God. I thank you for this journey that we've gone down with David, uh, David the boy, David the the, the uh, you know uh, I would say criminal almost, you know, from the state uh, in. Uh, in the wilderness and wandering, uh, David, the man of faith and um, of also great tragedy and um, through human nature, a great fall. And God, just seeing this whole journey of this person you say is your person. They get you. Um, God, I just thank you for what I've learned personally in just my time in this story, but God, as a church too. And as we talk today, about these attributes, these qualities that we see in the most difficult time of David's life that that really manifests, shows the kind of person he has become. I got to ask that you challenge us in these areas as well. God is not only when things are great, but God also when we are in the valley of the shadow of death like David. And there's heartbreak all around him, but yet he still clings to you, God. Um, inspire us to be more like that. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> we have two more uh, messages on this. Today we're, we'll be kind of really the beginning of the end of the series. And, you know, I, I've, I've, I've spent, all I know is David the last almost 12 weeks. I, uh, it's funny because like whenever somebody talks about something, they're like, well, funny in the story of David, I'm like, oh, I got to get out of this story. I'm just all in this story. And, you know, the, the thing about David is we get to see this journey. We get to see the highlights. We get to see the lowlights. He's a very relatable person to all of us. David also gives us an insight in his writing of the Psalms as he's going through some of these journeys. Uh, today we're going to read a lot of them because he writes them in this part of his story. And they give us the insight of his mentality about what's happening and maybe, if not the hardest, most difficult time of his life. It's one thing if Saul, who is his father-in-law, was the king hunting him down. It's another if it's your own son trying to kill you. And so it's more than just he's in the wilderness. It's who he's being chased by. The heartbreak that's going on in his life, right? But we're going to take a look at this. And I always read this passage before we start because David is this person of obedience. 
This is what he's about. He's, he is a yes man for God. He is willing to go where God will take him, at, completely blind to what the circumstances will be every step he takes. That, this is why God says, this is someone who will follow me. And, and, and I've read this passage a bunch of times, but Acts 13, 22, this is our series verse. It says, and when he, God, removed Saul, he raised up David, right, this heir, and he testified about David. I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. This is what separates David from any king in the line of Israel. This is what separates David as a, as a follower, um, following God's direction in very difficult times with a tremendous amount of temptation and fear all around him. This obedience factor is, if you walk away from this series, I, I pray you're challenged by that. Being obedient to God, it's, 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 it's easy to say no to God, is it not? God is calling you to something. We read a passage and, and, and it convicts you or you're reading it yourself or in a conversation, you could choose in that moment, the, the Spirit's speaking to me, but I can say no. David easily said no. Right? David paid some serious consequences. And we do pay consequences in a way of the walking out of the fruit of whatever decision contrary to the obedience of God. It just plays itself out that way. But we have a choice. God doesn't... doesn't dictate every step we have, but if we trust him, he'll lead us in every step we have, right? So David has this quality, but today we're going to start to unpack. Listen, I, ha I had a lot of qualities in this story. I had to slim them down. I have seven total, but I'm going to only do four today. This is kind of the closing of his life. And we start to see the person that he has been shaped to be, and not just because of the things he says. You know someone's character and, and, and their values because they don't even need to really say them. They do them. And David does these things. We can clearly see it in the story. And so we're going to see the full range of his character. We're going to understand why he is still now considered the greatest king that has ever ruled the nation of Israel. I titled this message, I'm sorry if it rips off Lord of the Rings, but you know what? The Return of the King, and I think he did this before, you know, Tolkien wrote the book. So, um, and it's all about the qualities of the one who is after God's own heart. And these qualities can, and it probably do exist in all of us. These are qualities that aren't unattainable. These are qualities that every one of us on a daily basis can choose these qualities and put them into action, Right? No one probably will even know you're doing it, but the fruit of it will work itself out in your life. But, you know, when I think of what makes someone great, give me some things that you think what the world would define as someone that's a great person. Not nice. I'm talking, they've done great things. They're great in the eyes of our culture. A what? An Olympian? Much like you and I, Chad, right? Yeah. Creates a new label? I don't know what you mean. Okay. <laughs> but anything, anybody else? Impact, right? They make an impact. Wealth? You didn't know this was interactive today. Okay. Uh, I, I, uh, some of what you guys said here, too, I think 
it will fit in what I, I just personally, I'm going to give you what I think if I assess culture historically as well as today, we're going to see probably four things that we would say that's a great person. They are great. One definitely is power. Power is a dynamic that's happened that's, that all throughout history. Power is something that we recognize throughout history when we study people. It's usually, it would be prominent people of power. And so power dominates sometimes the pages of history, and I would say today it will still dominate. It's what people look to, and in the presence of someone of power, they feel differently, right? <clears throat> and so power is something we'd say, that's a great person. Julius Caesar, right? Like it, this little statue of him kind of is just this, this uh, statuesque type of leader. He was a brilliant warrior. He, he, he led the, the, the legions in taking over and dominating. Julius Caesar, I mean, when they look at this expanse of his power, of what he had in the world, he was unmatched. And if you look up the power rankings of all time in history, not influential, power, it would be Julius Caesar at the very top. He was dominant, he was ruthless, and he was powerful. So they would say, he's a great man. Or wealth, right? Like you said, wealth, Jess. Wealth is, is I would say, probably the most enticing, because it also gives you power as well. But I would say in our today and day and age and culture would be wealth. We would really respect it. And I don't disrespect wealth at all. I, I think I... I don't respect wealth that becomes an identity because it's not real in a way. It can, it can go. Our identity should never be in temporal things. But I respect the accomplishment. Now, you probably don't know who this historical figure is. Now, we would say Solomon was the wealthiest man that ever lived, and that's what the Bible says, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go with that. There was a ruler, though, historians would say, probably was, you know, if they discount Solomon, in their eyes, the most wealthiest person who ever lived. And then his name was Manasseh Musa. He lived in the 1300 uh, uh, AD. And he, he ruled a big chunk of the northern, um, uh, northwestern part of Africa. And many nations were under him. And the fascinating thing about this guy, we don't realize, is that he, he's very, kind of unknown because he didn't go out and dominate other cultures. But what he did have is he possessed, at that time, half of the entire gold of the entire world in his kingdom. He was considered the most wealthiest person that the world has ever seen. It's fascinating because he was so wealthy. Uh, his slaves wore gold. He had a, a real legit golden throne that people came from around the world when they heard about him to go see him on his golden throne in the wealth. He was on holiday. And when he would go on holiday, tell me if you travel like this, he traveled with 60,000 people on holiday. And so his entourage was 60,000 people. It was an entire city in motion. And as they were going through, the story is, is they went into Egypt and he saw the state of Egypt and saw that they could use an influx of cash in there. And he had so much gold that he just spent gold, spent his gold like crazy, gave gold away that he actually didn't realize it, but he actually bankrupted the entire economy of Egypt 
when he left because the price of gold dropped so much because there's so much gold in Egypt, which like never happens. It put him into a 10-year recession. And on the way back, he was traveling and going and visiting. And on the way back, he said, oh, I'll buy all that gold back if you want and uh, tried to get some of it back because he saw what he had done to the economy. He comes back. He was so wealthy that it was like he just couldn't get rid of the gold, right? So money makes people extraordinarily interesting in our world. Accomplishments, like you were saying with an Olympian, Chad. This is a fascinating story. Her name is Madame Curry. She is uh, a scientist, inventor, uh, definitely a leader in her industry. <clears throat> Broke a lot of barriers to be uh, who she was in the scientific community. But if you have ever heard of anybody who got treatment for cancer from radiation, it's due to this woman. She was a brilliant scientist, had to fight a lot of stereotypes to get through. Albert Einstein himself had to personally write a letter to endorse her to get into a certain institute to conduct her experiments. She discovered the two main ingredients or these two main properties that were radioactive that benefit us today and have saved millions and millions and millions of lives. She developed a mobile x-ray uh, carriage to x-ray soldiers on the war front. She was brilliant. But not only that, she founded an institution that today all of cancer treatment comes from this institution. And on top of that, she was the only person in history to win two Nobel Prizes, and she got them in two different areas. And uh, she won them around 1908, and she won them in physics, and she won them in chemistry. She was a brilliant, brilliant person. Sadly, all the work with radiation, not known at that time, she ended up dying because of the radiation. She gave herself to the cause. She accomplished so much. She would be considered great. Or intelligence. Uh, you may not know this story, but the smartest person who ever lived was born in Boston, and it wasn't uh, Goodwill Hunting, right? It's, it's, I think they tried to steal the story. This kid, right, his name was William Sidus. And he is considered to be the most intelligent person who was ever born on this earth. William, this kid, was at two years old reading the Wall Street Journal. And at age five, knew fluently nine different languages. And I'm not talking easy ones. And at age nine, was accepted into Harvard. And at age 11, they finally let him in because they thought nine might be a little too young, you know what I mean, to hang out with like college students. Graduated at the top of his class. He, Albert Einstein had 160 right, IQ. He was at minimum, they, when they tested him, was 260. And possibly to 300. What, smartest kid who ever lived. Uh, you look at intelligence and we're just blown away by it. But when I look at those things, I think we are blown back by that in our culture today. And we say, wow, that's great. And then, then you have David. Now put this picture of David up. And this is David, this great man after God's own heart. And that's his sad walk out of Jerusalem. And that's his sad walk into the wilderness, this great king. We don't think in our terms today that David would be considered great. But the story isn't about how we perceive David. The story is about how God perceived David. Our world and God's worlds are different. 
What he values and what we value are different. What he considers great and what we consider great are different. He trusted God and he was obedient. And that's what made David great to God in his economy. But what makes a Christian stand out in God's economy? What does God kind of pay attention to in his economy? Hmm? Well, you're stealing this, Bruce. That's not fair. Okay. Obedience, yes. Anybody else? When does God pay attention? Compassion. Grace. Generosity. These, what? What? Love. Do these sound like the attributes that we typically would say that's a great person? This is what's amazing about God, and this is why we have to continually resist the influence and pressure to, con- to, to really redefine what greatness is. And I think all those things are great in their own way, but what God stands at attention in is your obedience, your love, your compassion, your grace, right? Your generosity. 2 Corinthians 6.8 is the very best verse for this. And if you want to know what God stands to attention to, it's going to be 2 Corinthians 4-8. through It'll be up on the screen. But as servants, Paul writes, of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Here we go. By great endurance in affliction, hardship, calamity, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and by the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. If you want to know what God really stands attention to, it's this list in the face of difficulty, in the face of all those hardships God is going, that is obedience. And to God, remaining in obedience through him, through the good, the bad, and the ugly, this is what he loves. I'm not going to discount anybody's uh, accomplishments, your power, your wealth, or your intelligence. I, I will not do that. I think it's a gift from God. But we have to make sure always that our confidence is not in those things that can lend to it but those are temporal what David did in the difficulties was his confidence was not there it was in God so the story we're going to look at 2 Samuel 17 through 18 I'll try to get through all of these four is the first thing the first quality we see of these qualities of an obedience obedience in action is the one is David was satisfied in God He was completely satisfied in the Lord. Satisfaction, though, I think does depend on our appetite. What fulfills us? Now, some of you are are, are big, you know, diet, you know, uh, uh, you know, conscious and very much about health and nutrition. And you probably didn't just get there without changing your appetite from snacks to meals, right? I have this problem. I, I don't fully embrace diet 
and uh, discipline of snacking and health. And when I see somebody do it, I'm really impressed by it. But then when I get home, I'm like, you know what I really want, which I had last night way too much, is salted caramel ice cream because it's so good, especially when you mix it and stir it. It's really good. Um, so I just think, like, what actually fulfills it? But when I have those things, I'm actually never fulfilled momentarily, temporarily. But I do know that when I change my appetite and I choose the things that actually will fill me and fulfill me, then my appetite also then begins to change and I want that more and more and the temptation of the other becomes less and less. David is satisfied with God. He was able to change his appetite to what really fulfilled him. And so in this story, Absalom, he finds out he starts to begin, David finds out that Absalom is amassing this massive army. And he's not coming just to, to uh, um, defeat David. <clears throat> he's coming to destroy David. He's probably coming to wipe the name of his father off the history books. He wants to be the supreme ruler. He has this giant army. And David's still on the run. They had just walk 20 miles, they're exhausted, man, woman, and child, and they're at the riverbed. They hear this massive army is being amassed, and David then goes, we have to cross this river, and we're going to have to do it now. In the middle of the night, when they just sat down, and they're tired, and I can't imagine, you, you know when you're following a leader, a boss, or, or, or a coach, and you're just going, what are you doing? Like, we're on the losing side here. You're making bad decisions. What have you gotten us into? His people are probably at this place of, what are you doing, David? Now they got to cross at night. It's super dangerous to cross, and they're doing it in the middle of the night, but they get across. But here's David's mindset. He writes about this moment, the moment when they cross, and he reflects on what the people are saying. He said this, in Psalms 46, many people say, who will show us better times? Do you know what that is? That's insubordination. That's like, there's got to be a better boss. There's got to be somebody better than this guy. Who's going to show us better times? And then David says, let your face smile on us, Lord. <clears throat> he says, you have given me greater joy than those who have abundance and harvest of grain and new wine. Notice his appetite. In peace, I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, you alone, will keep me safe. His appetite is different than even the people. He, he puts his trust in the Lord, and it's greater joy to him to be with God than it is for those who have all the luxuries of life. <clears throat> Augustine said this, he says, you have made us for yourselves. He's talking about... God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And when your heart finds your rest in God, you then become satisfied in him. Now, I don't know everybody's story here. I know a few stories in here. And I know that some of us are in extreme trials right now. And you can still find the peace in the middle of the storm. You can still find the rest like David and his weary people who are crossing the Jordan in the middle of the night and going, what have we done? Where are we at? How did we get here? And you can still say, I have greater joy 
than those who have what I don't have. But David's people, they arrive at a city in, in the story in, verse, in chapter 17. But it's funny because they arrive at a city that was an enemy city that David had conquered. And they were still considered enemies of David. He has nowhere else to go. <laughs> Only his enemy. And his enemy is a safe haven, but it's not his city. But he's satisfied in the Lord. The second thing we see in his character is he sought kindness. And we're going to see where kindness pays off. You know, it's easy to not be kind. Especially if someone's not kind to you. It's easy to just, you know, be about your own thing. Be busy. Do your own thing. It's, people are difficult. I don't know if you know this. Uh, pastors would always say this at pastor's conferences. I didn't really like it because it kind of put a negative light on you, the church, uh, as a pastor. But they'd always say, churches are amazing until people come. <laughs> and I don't believe that, actually. I think the church is amazing because you're here and you've enriched my life. But I, I also think that the, sometimes like, it's hard to be kind. It's hard to be kind to the person at work. It's hard to be kind to the person who has maybe put themselves against you. It's hard to be kind to a competitor. It's hard to be kind to someone who maybe feels like they're trying to destroy you. But I tell you what, David sought kindness. And I would say this is true, and I found this in my own life, and maybe you can think about it in where you've seen it done. But I think kindness breaks down walls that God himself rebuilds for his purposes. Kindness will break down walls, soften a heart, and God will rebuild that heart, Right? That, those walls, or God will rebuild what's going on. The walls that have been ripped down, and God has a purpose for the person on the other side of your kindness. You may not see the direct fruit of it. David does here. But someone else will. Kindness is always, always the best foot forward. Do you guys remember this movie called Hacksaw Ridge? It was filmed by uh, the director, Clint Eastwood. It's a great his historical moment. And it's very inspiring. And um, it, it was uh, during World War II and the war, war in Okinawa. And there's a guy there. His name is Desmond Doss. And he was a guy who just signed up to go to World War II to be with the troops. But he didn't want to take another soul. And he was mocked and he was abused. And he was uh, uh, nobody wanted to be around him because they couldn't trust that he didn't have a gun to have their back. And he just... Stayed to his principles as someone who was going to just, he felt conviction to be there and to support for the people there. But he was not going to take a life. And it's interesting because he's getting the Presidential Medal of Honor here. Because this guy, who everybody in his troop hated, ended up saving 75 of their lives. Lowering them down a 300, 400 foot cliff. And he himself was shot and injured four times in the midst of it. It changed the troop. It changed their mentality. It broke down the walls and it opened their hearts to, what is this guy about? It must be different. And God repurposed the walls that were tear, torn down and changed those troops' lives. It's an inspiring, inspiring story. But you know what? God will do something with the kindness that breaks down the hearts of the hardened 
And he, and he did it here, 2 Samuel 17, 27. When David came to Mahanaim, uh, now these are a bunch of tough names, but I'm going to go through this. Shabi, the son of Nahash, and uh, from Rahab, from the Amorites. Now listen, this first person that comes to David when he's going to his enemy's city to seek safety is a, is a nation that they were in huge battle with, and David defeated them. And he removed their king, and this was one of the brothers and David allowed him to maintain rule, right? David showed him kindness when he could have wiped out the entire family line like most people did to make sure they did not have anybody who would rise up with the memory of what David had done to that city. But he showed kindness, and he treated that kingdom kindly. And so he shows up. And he says, and it goes on to say, and, uh, uh, and Makari the son of Emil and from uh, uh, Lodabar, this guy was a guy who was present when David had the opportunity to wipe out all of Saul's family, but he made a promise that he wouldn't, he wouldn't do anything to lay a hand on any, any of the descendants, but particularly Jonathan's. And his, young, his son, who was, um, uh, couldn't, was handicapped, he couldn't, he, he couldn't travel. David showed great compassion on him. And this guy, earlier in Samuel, took note of that and said, this is a compassionate leader, a compassionate man. And it bound his heart to David, the kindness he showed. And this last guy, uh, Brasilia, um, from, uh, Gileadite, from uh, Rogalim, they brought these basins and earthen vessels of wheat and barley, for, uh, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, and sheep and cheese from uh, the herd for David and his people to eat. Um, and they said when they saw them, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. David's compassion on them uh, was given back in compassion in the moment they needed it. When you sow kindness, you will sow a fruit that it may be in the day of your need that you will reap it. And he reaps it fully here. These all could have gathered around him and destroyed David. But his kindness allowed their hearts to help him in return for kindness. Solomon learned from his dad from this experience. And listen to what Solomon wrote. It sounds selfish, but don't hear it this way. Proverbs eleven seventeen. a man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. And what you sow, you will then reap. And so when you sow kindness, care, and compassion, you will reap that. Solomon learned, and he knew well from his father's experience. We wouldn't hear the rest of the story of David had he been cruel. The next part of the story that we see a character and a quality of God, uh, of David, that is important is David deeply loved. And he loved deeply. You know, in this moment, you've had your child rebel against you. Do you remember the first time your child said no to you when they were young? And you're like, did you say no? It's so funny because, like, as your kids get older and I watch younger parents... I remember the moments when you were like so distraught that they were not obeying you. And then they almost loved not obeying you. And then when you're saying, come here, then they would run. And then everybody's like kind of watching. You're like, <laughs> when we get home, right? 
it, 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 it's something that, you know, we as parents, yes, we've dealt with difficulty. And David's dealing with his son who wants to murder him and take over everything and destroy his name and destroy his household, defiled his household. But he would see past the flaws and he'd see past all the hatred and he would see his son Absalom with his deep love for who Absalom really was. This isn't just a fatherly love because all throughout history, and I could list some of the most famous rulers of all time, killed kin to keep power. So it isn't something that's just innate in any, any parent. Lots of people that you would be shocked by killed kin to keep their power or fought and destroyed family members to keep their power. David does not do this. He's different. He loved deeply. Here's his mindset. You want to hear it? Well, first let me read uh, a, a little bit here just to kind of give you an idea. At this moment, D- David has uh, organized his troops into th- five tiers, ultimately three generals over three troops. And he has two tiers, hundreds and thousands. And he spreads throughout a forest because he knows it's going to be hard to fight in this forest. He picks the battleground. And it's interesting because David's a seasoned military tactician. This guy has been in the forefront. He's a military genius. And then there's Absalom who just heard his dad's story. So this fight is already over. David is brilliant. And his plan works perfectly. Spread everybody out. Couldn't be a unified fight. And they end up dismantling the entire army. David's a brilliant leader and a brilliant tactical leader and I think in his mind he thought because I can win this so strategically I can probably preserve my son it's funny when I was reading the difference between the two I I, I remember this interview I listened to from Mike Tyson Mike Tyson said this when somebody asked him is your son going to fight and he said I do not want my son to box because he's soft he's had everything it's easy he hasn't had to really work for anything he said I was forged in fire and I'm a killer and when he meets someone like me they'll kill him and I thought (laughs) you know it's not like us where we're like oh yeah you should totally do it oh yeah all right pole vaulting great we'll get the stick you know like it's different and David's in that kind of situation where Absalom is soft he's only heard stories and he's coming up against a great military warrior. David already, I feel like, maybe knows the outcome. But this is what he says when he's rallying the troops and he's getting them all around. He's giving the great William Wallace Wallace speech to them. He's letting them know this is what we're going to do. And he says these words that could make them look weak. But he says them anyways. He says in 2 Samuel 18.5, and the king ordered Joab, uh, Abashai, and uh, uh, Ida, which are his three top generals, deal gently for my sake with young, the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave the orders and, all the, uh, to, and to all the commanders about Absalom, right? In the middle of this, he's saying, the guy who's started this war, why many of you will die, please keep him. I, I love the vulnerability. I love the love that David has and his willingness to put his reputation at risk, which he does. Because he loves deeply 
for his son. Psalms 103.3 says, the, and this is what he reflects about this, about fatherhood, about love. He says, the Lord is like a father to his children. So if God can love me this way, in the midst of me being what was called an enemy of God, then I, as a father, can love. And he says, this is how the Lord loves, tender and compassionate to those who fear him, for he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. David knows Absalom. He knows how weak he is. He knows who he is and in the, in, in, in the weakness within him. But he still loves him compassionately. Brian Johnston wrote a great book called Healthy Churches. And he said, attitudes and actions which really show the love of Christ help to overcome resistance to the good news Right? The God, to God's good news. Meaning that when we show love, like Christ says, people will know your mind. And when we show the attitudes and the actions, and they actually are put into play, it breaks down walls that hinder people from hearing the good news. David loved deeply. Our love is our witness. And David witnessed to all of his troops that day about deep love. And it cost him. But it was worth it. And the last thing here is that we see in David's journey is he desired relationship with God. He wanted that. It, it wasn't like a formality. It wasn't like he punched a clock. It wasn't like uh, a relationship with God was just a good idea. It, it wasn't like it was like, well, I'll talk, and, uh, but maybe you're there. It was not like that. He desired that relationship. And he didn't, didn't just desire a relationship with God when he needed it. He desired it when he didn't need it as well. But all he could think about was seeking God and being with God. In this time, in this hardship, he goes back to the fortress because his men don't want him to fight because they're like, man, if they take you, David, then we're in trouble. So we don't want you to fight. We'll take care of this. You just give orders from the fortress. That's really not his fortress. And he's waiting and he's hoping, hoping that they heard what he said about Absalom. It's the number one thing on his mind more than the battle. He's hoping that Absalom is safe. But this is a familiar place for David, always in this place of tension and turmoil and difficulty. As a teen, right? As a guy who was walking towards Goliath, feeling the turmoil. But he just is like, God, I'm with you. You're with me, right? Right? We're together, right? And even in the place, in the palace, when he's sitting with Saul and trying to get speared by Saul, for doing nothing, he's with God. God, you got me right. While he's in the wilderness, when he's at war, right, even up to this place, all the sleepless nights and now. But this is what he writes about this in this moment. While he's waiting to hear about the war, and most importantly, about the love for his son and hoping he returns. Psalms 27.4. The one thing I ask of the Lord. When the Bible says this, it's worth paying attention to. The thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord, uh, the Lord's perfection, and meditating in his temple. For he will conceal me when there is trouble to come. He will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. And then I will hold my head up high. Notice where his confidence comes from. Then he will hold his head up high when he delights 
and desires to be with God above my enemies who surround me. Listen to verse 8. My heart has heard you, talking to God, say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I'm coming. It's, it's one of my favorite parts of the Psalms, is that interaction. He hears and he responds. That's where his heart is at. Have you ever had somebody try to talk to you and you just don't want to talk to them and you act like you didn't hear them and you just keep walking off? Not you because you're good people. Uh, I, I have. And I'm like, and sometimes my kids, it'll be like, hey, dad. And I'm like, uh, oh, I didn't hear you. I don't want to fulfill your request, right? But we can be this way, right? Or, it's the, you know, you're in the bathroom for 45 minutes on an iPad trying to just get away from everybody. Okay, I get it. Sometimes you want to tune it all out. But David's is hearing and responding, hearing and responding. And I wonder how much God is speaking and calling to you. And what is our response? Are we running to him? Are we running from him? Are we just walking away going, I got too many problems to think about. But David says, when I desired you, I then lifted my head up high, even though I'm surrounded by my enemies. You call, I respond. Can you guys bow your heads? I have some questions. I just want you to think about while I'm asking them. Who are you when the clouds roll in? It's a good question to ask. Who are you when the clouds roll in? What's kind of firing inside your brain and heart at that time? It's worth asking. Who are others around you when the cloud is hanging over them? Who are you to them? Like David's guys who come to his rescue when he, they saw the cloud hanging? Who are you when you see the dark cloud? Do we say, oh, I don't want that dark cloud near me. I got to stay over here in the sunshine. Go away. Who are you when the dark clouds hang over others? And I would say most importantly, who is God in those times of fear and doubt? Who is he to you? Do we see him like David sees God? Or, or are we overwhelmed by the circumstances? Who, who, are, who is God in those moments to you? It's so important. I know that we can't go and air all of our dirty laundry and difficulty, you know, and so we do have to keep and maintain a smile. I think that that's important. I do. But I'm not going to pretend that many of us haven't or will have or are currently going through, and we have a dark cloud, it feels like, in our life where the storm is raging, and we are just hanging on like the disciples, freaking out. And Jesus comes and says, if you invite me into the boat here, Things are going to change for you. Who are you? Who are others? Who are you to others? And ultimately, yes, who is God in these moments? And where is your trust and belief? Because your obedience will command a response. I would say this week for me, I would, I would ask this or I would do this. I would evaluate what satisfies you. What actually brings satisfaction when you're struggling, when you're down, when you're depressed? What actually brings that? Is it the tub of ice cream that makes us feel better? Probably not. Is it laying in bed all day? Probably not. But 
there's something more than just outward things that make us. Who are we internally? What satisfies us internally? Can we get to the place where David's in enemy territory, surrounded by his son's army, thinking he could be overwhelmed by this is the end. I'm on the run. I failed. Sometimes as a parent, when your kids go completely awry, you feel like you're a failure, but you're not. But who are we in these moments? Are we satisfied? How about maybe bringing some kindness that's undeserved to someone who the world wouldn't give kindness to, but you're not of the world. You're just in it. So could you do maybe that this week and just see what happens with that? And I would say this is, could you tap into real love, I think for God and especially almost like an unapologetically uh, loving heart towards someone? When a relative might be like, why are you being nice to Aunt Susie? Don't you know how horrible it is? And it's like, you know, but I want to show her love. I mean, no one else gets it, but you get it. Can you show love like that, even to an enemy, maybe this week? And I would say this last thing is, maybe this week, thinking seek and desire, I would say one thing. The one thing David says I want most. It's a different answer than Solomon. Solomon wanted wisdom, David wanted to be with God. And this is why I think David's greater than Solomon by far. Because he said, if there's one thing I could have, God, I want this, I want to be by you. I want to be close to you. You're my father and I'm your son. But maybe the one thing is maybe live in God's house, you know, delight and meditate on him. And then maybe then you will be able to do what David did. You will be able to lift your head high because you knew who you belonged to. And that might just change everything. God, we love you. We thank you so much for the story of David. These aren't the great parts, God. These aren't the beautiful parts. These aren't the fun victories. This isn't Goliath, God. This is probably very real to what we experience, God. But yet his quality of his character is why we should strive for these types of attributes, God. This why. Because you love that. You stand and applaud that. And so God, I ask that every one of us, those four things and then the next three things next week, God, that we embrace these things, these qualities in the midst of difficulty and even plentiful. And God, we just thank you for the courage to do it, the strength to do it. And God, we know you will give us the opportunity to put it into action. And we know you will bring people in front of us that can, we can put it into action, love and kindness. We know the clouds are here or were there or coming. Help us put it into action. And that God, hopefully, then will be the path of obedience that we'll begin to walk like the one you say was after you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Could you guys stand with me and sing this last song?